Hello and welcome to Forgotten Sitcoms. It's Gareth here. Today I'm going to be talking about the evolutionary missing link between the young ones and Bottom, which is Filthy Rich and Catflap. Filthy Rich and Catflap was originally broadcast in 1987 on BBC Two, which is two and a half years after the young ones fell off a cliff in their bus and four years before bottom personally i was 11 when this went out and i remember it i remember it going out I remember it being broadcast uh, but it was never repeated so it kind of faded from my memory and it was sort of sat on by bottom you know it was it was kind of subsumed by what came later it was actually released on dvd in 2004 and then again in 2012 as a 25th anniversary re-release but, but actually, I watched this on YouTube. The whole, as I'm recording this, the whole series is available on YouTube, so you can go and, uh, and fill your boots there if you, if you want to give it a go. This was written by Ben Elton to further showcase the talents of his friend and his muse, Rick Mayle, and Mayle's comedic partner, Adrian Edmondson. But this production also brought a third young one, Nigel Planer, along for the ride, although he's very much in a supporting role to our main two protagonists. There was no room, of course, here for Christopher Ryan, but then he always was the boring one. Although young one's director, Paul Jackson, was also brought on board. Basic setup is that Mail's character, Richard Richie Rich, he's an obnoxious TV personality of dubious fame. There's a running joke that he believes himself to be this huge celebrity, but no one ever recognises him. Adrian Edmondson plays this sociopath character. He's violent, Eddie Catflap. We're told that he's Richie's bodyguard, but he never seems to do much bodyguarding. He's a chaotic drunk. He's grifting from his friend, he even blackmails him a couple of times. Generally takes advantage of Richie's delusional grandeur. Nigel Planer's character is Ralph Filthy. He's Richie's manager. At best, he is incompetent, but at worst, he's a walking, talking yew tree. He personifies the sleaze of those, those sort of stereotypical backroom industry types. He's physically grotesque. There's all dandruff everywhere and cigarette ash all over him. Just the way he talks, every line is sort of sordid and grotty. I'm beginning to have second thoughts about this whole all publicity being good luck. I mean, I've been in the business a long time. <laughs> I can remember when Andrew Gardner blew off on News at 10. <laughs> Bong. Good evening, this is the news. <laughs> Tense moment. The nation held its breath. So did Anna Ford, I'm told. OK, let's have a look here at the evolution from the young ones. As I said, it's the same creative team, and it's got that same anarchic, convention-busting attitude. It's all a little bit self-consciously postmodern. There's a lot of breaking of the fourth wall. They play around with reality by speeding up the action. There's a lot of explaining the joke, explaining the mechanics of comedy. And then we also see them mock the very notion of a studio-based sitcom by actually uh, showing the studio and, and mocking it. Ready, Eddie? Ready, ready. Let's go. Blimey. The news agents has got a lot closer since we moved into a smaller studio. Shut up, Eddie, shut up. You're spoiling the magic for everyone. Oh, oh, oh look, the news agent. <clears throat> Eddie Catflap, in particular, he feels like a slightly more grown-up version of Vivian. He's violent, he's psychotic, he's selfish. He's completely charmless. It's inconceivable that Eddie Catflap would be able to hold down a job. It's barely even believable that he'd be outside of an institution. But of course, in this scenario, his employer is so bone-crushingly stupid that he gets away with it. Male's character feels like what might have happened if Rick from The Young Ones had accidentally fallen into a media career and had some sort of brain surgery that separated him from any last vestiges of self-awareness. Nigel Planer, in contrast, he's playing a totally different character. 
It's hard to imagine Neil ever becoming Ralph Filthy, no matter how much lentil stew he ate. One oddity of this is that Filthy Ralph, he's very much an ancillary character. There's a few times he actually appears on his own at the end of a telephone, and I wondered if Nigel Planer perhaps had some scheduling difficulties, he was busy doing something else, and he wasn't available for all of the filming. Yeah, no, don't shout, daughter, don't shout. There's only so much an agent can take after only one bottle of aspirin. I reckon if you asked Ben Elton, he would probably tell you that Filthy Rich and Catflap is a satire. And I suppose it is, but it feels pretty ham-fisted at times. The main target of the satire is this dubious world of celebrity. And here I will give credit to Ben Elton, because we sometimes think that this world of celebrity culture began in the 90s with Big Brother and all the dancing programmes. But this is Ben Elton getting stuck into that, that idea of vacuous celebrity long before it was cool. Richie is an actor celebrity who never appears to do any acting but he lives all the affectations and trappings of celebrity. If this were made now, in 2021, Richie would be on a never-ending carousel of jungles and ice rinks. But in 1987, the equivalent to that was the panel show Ooh-er, Sounds a Bit Rude, which is obviously a thinly-veiled cartoon version of Blackity Blank. Now, the rules of the game, like the members of the panel, are very, very simple indeed. (laughs) I read out a sentence which sounds a bit rude, and then my good friends here have to laugh dirtily, but then have to come up with a clean version. For example, I never impress the girls because I've only got a tiny... Oh, penis! In that episode, Game Show, there's a dig at the art world. It features uh, some great guest appearances from Stephen Fry as an art collector and Hugh, Hugh Laurie as his manager. And the joke is that Eddie becomes this collectible artist after Fry buys a puddle of his vomit. To be honest, this feels like a bit of an easy target, but it also shows a sort of lack of self-awareness. They're essentially saying, you know, people are really stupid for treating any old tat as art, but they are at the same time producing this sitcom. Could we call it art? But they are producing a sitcom that, t- to be generous... Let's say it doesn't follow the traditional structures of the form. And yet this is where I have a bit of a problem with Filthy Rich and Catflap. There's just so many times where it feels, it feels cruel and bullying. I don't, mean, I don't mean the casual violence of the characters towards each other. That's not what I mean. But I mean in this dismissive attitude that they have towards older, what we might call legacy comedians. This swipe at the generation before, it's just not funny. I mean, there's no humour in it. It's just vicious. It just feels, it just feels nasty. It feels like a, an axe to the groin. Look, if there's one thing I hate in British entertainment more than you, it's that vast army of ex-stand-up comics who did one half-funny gag on Sunday night at the London Palladium in the middle 60s and have made a fortune doing game shows ever since. Oh, good evening! And your name is Cynthia, and you'd like me to patronise and humiliate you on the off chance of winning a cheese mate! Chicken chappies! More like complete and utter bastards, if you ask me! I suppose this is interesting to place in context. In the mid-80s, I probably would have laughed along to this iconoclasm. But we're all older now, and it it kind of feels cruel. Especially coming from Ben Elton, a man who did several funny gags on Saturday Live in the middle-80s and has made a fortune doing jukebox musicals ever since. That's not fair. You know, we covered Ben Elton on the British Sitcom History Podcast when we looked at the Thin Blue Line. I'd urge you to have a listen to that. You can find it on this channel. But to summarise, I am a Ben Elton apologist. I think he's a really talented guy. I think he's really unfairly maligned. And I think he's held to a higher standard than others just because we have this collective perception of him as a sellout. But listening to some of the rants in Filthy Rich and Catflap feels awkward. It feels like they're punching down. Perhaps in 1987 it was punching up, but now the, the war for the soul of comedy is well won by the alternative comedians. And those traditional comics lost. Putting the boot into them now just 
it sort of feels heartless. As I'm recording this in 2021, Benny Hill feels like an easy target and they clobber him pretty mercilessly. That probably felt different in 1987. Perhaps there's an irony here in that this, this criticism of old-fashioned comedy would have been fine in 1987, but now it feels hopelessly out of date itself. I've joined the ranks of the other suffering artists. Keats, he suffered. Shelley, she suffered. <laughs> Michael Barrymore, we all suffered. <laughs> Overall, you know, Filthy Rich and Catflap probably bears more similarities to Bottom than it does to the young ones. Mail and Edmondson had been performing as the Dangerous Brothers for several years, turning this violence into comedy. And in Filthy Rich and Catflap, there is a lot of violence. And you know, after a while, it just gets a little bit tiresome. It loses its shock value and it just makes me wonder who's going to clear up. Maybe I am just getting old, but I do remember even in the 90s finding Bottom a little bit repetitive. And this, this is really my underlying problem with Filthy Rich and Catflap, which is it's all just turned up a bit too much for my liking. I know this is not going to be a popular opinion and it almost pains me to say it, but I think that that too high energy is not down to Elton's writing, but almost exclusively down to Rick Mayle's frenetic performance. Rick Mayle was clearly a force of nature and everyone who's ever worked with him speaks of him with genuine affection. But as with everyone else, I think that his strengths are also his weaknesses and that frenetic energy, it just spills over into that, into this overacting, this gurning to camera it often tramples straight across all the comedy. And I, I, just, I, just, I just find it a bit tiresome after a while. It's not just in Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. Here's a clip of Rick Mayle appearing on Wogan in 1984. And the comedy's all derived from his delivery rather than the material. The jokes, if you wrote them down, they're not good jokes, but they work. They work because he makes them work. Knowing me is a bit like being on the road with the Who. Actually, in fact, one of my friends said that to me the other day. He said, um, hey, Rick, knowing you is a bit like being on the road with the Who, isn't it? I said, with the Who? Straight off the top of my head, I hadn't planned to say it or anything. I'm just mad, I don't care. Now, I was just criticising iconoclastic bullying and pulling down of old-fashioned comedians, and I don't want to do that same thing to Rick Mayle now. I understand that Rick Mayle is much loved. This is just a subjective opinion. I just find it a little bit too much. And after three hours of Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, I'd had enough. I just felt like I was being verbally slapped around. I know, I know, that is the point. And look, if you are a Rick Mayle guy, then Filthy Rich and Cat Flap will give you what you want. It is Rick Mayle turned up to 11. Let me end this review with a couple of positives. Firstly, the set, the set dressing. I absolutely loved Rich and Eddie's home. It's, it's, it's chaotic splendour. There are pictures on the walls of Tarby, Wogan, Little and Large, even Mike Reed, but not that one. There's battered furniture with, with just horrible stains on everything. Inexplicably, there are car parts strewn around the place. There's a rug that looks like a pizza. There's a stage door sign over Richie's bedroom, which is quite splendid. Something else that I really enjoyed was they have this affectation of abbreviating things. It's this kind of industry speak that they employ and it makes themselves sound more sophist. So when they're sitting at home, Richie laments, oh, the hours are not exactly charging by at the moment. Oh, this is ridiculous. We'll never get gainful employment this way. And if we don't, the judge will send us back to prison. I know what I'll do. I'll phone Filthy. He's my agent. It's his responsibility to get us work. He's in prison under sentence of death. Selfish bastard. I don't really know where this tickled me, but it, it was just kind of peppered in at the right level and not overdone. And I appreciated that they'd gone to the trub. Last thing, I had really good fun spotting this who's who of British comedy who appeared as guest stars in, in only six episodes. There were loads of them. I clocked Harry Enfield doing a really bad Brummie accent. Chris Barry being furious at Richie. And, well, I felt his pain. 
We had Fry. We had Laurie. John Bird, who was doing a Rupert Murdoch impression that was so accurate, I am amazed the BBC lawyers let it through. Brian Croucher off of EastEnders, Barbara Windsor off of EastEnders, Anne Diamond as herself, The Nolans, Midjure, Linda Bellingham off of the OXO adverts, Michael Redfern off of the OXO adverts, Helen Lederer, who is a 1980s and 1990s British comedy legend, Hale, Pace, John Wells playing a hanging judge, literally, a clean-shaven and youthful David Baddiel, with Ben Elton over his shoulder. Mel Smith, playing a dissolute BBC producer. Arthur Smith, playing a murdered milkman. And Jules Holland, playing the piano, with his top off. 